Hi, I'm Adam Miller. And I'm Sarah Sweet. And welcome to Food on the Radio. Hey, Sarah, how you doing? Pretty good. Rabbit, rabbit. Happy March. Here we go. Spring is around the corner, although it's been weirdly springish more than it should. I can't believe I just said happy March. March is actually the cruelest month. It's the longest. There's no breaks from school. It's really just terrible. Yeah, March March is, is New England's maybe worst month. Finally, something we agree on. <laughs> all, all the more reason that it should be a time to just sit at home and make food. 100%. And so we're on food on the radio and we're going to do just that. Talk about making food. So, Adam, what did you make this week? Well, I got two things I want to talk about. The first one is Adam Bakes, (laughs) which is always interesting. And in this case... Shock. Yeah, a shock. And it was also had its ups and downs. Some people who might listen to this show know. I wanted to bake something (laughs) that was vegan. And I had some fairly almost too ripe bananas. So I found in, you know, the forever present New York Times cooking app... So I found in the app a recipe by Chloe Coscarelli called Vegan Chocolate Chip Banana Cake. And I made it twice. And the reason I made it twice is what I found is there are so many variables, it seems to me, especially with vegan stuff. When you're using, it uses coconut oil and canola oil, and then it's got chocolate chips and flour and you know but but because of humidity and moisture levels and all that sort of stuff the first time i made it it was kind of gooey and underdone even though i cooked it like almost five minutes longer than it said to um Mm. so i wasn't really happy with it and it goes to something i i think i was reading a while ago i think it was jacques pepin about how if you really want to make something good, you got to make it more than once and figure out how it sort of works out. So I said, let me try. And I think I asked you about this as well, which was, what do you think I should try to do? So I listened to you. I added a little more flour, used a little less liquids, and I cooked it even longer. And I used less chocolate chips as well. And so the second oh. time, it came out really good with a nice crust on it. And I think it might be, even though I've measured it, it's another reason why you should always check and see what your actual oven temperature is, because it may not be what it says it is. Uh, but in general, I have found in my oven, and I don't know if it's also a outer cape thing with humidity and that sort of stuff. I have found that baking, I almost always have to bake things longer than it says. So that's the baking thing that I made. Yes, I remember when you were talking to me about this and I had thought that messing or tweaking the fat content could be a mistake and that I think that was my advice, right? To go with either adjusting the flour or the liquid, like say if there's applesauce or almond milk or something in there, but to leave the fat as it was. Is that what you did? Basically, it it's like, it asks for like a, a lot of coconut cream you know coconut milk and i use a little maybe like 10 percent less of it i think that was a good choice and then maybe five percent more flour yeah that sounds about right and i and i think it i think it came out pretty good 
Um, it also asked for a, a cup of sugar. And I, I do think to a certain extent, sometimes what I've seen with vegan things is when they're worried that people might sort of, you know, cast aspersions on vegan pastries or baked goods that they that mm. to ask, they tend to then see if they can compensate by making it sweeter. Um, and so even though this was really good, I think the next time I actually would cut down on the sugar just because I never liked something as sweet as almost anything that asks for a cup of sugar to me is too much sugar. <laughs> yeah, so. I would say it's not just big vegan who's out to like make sure people like these products. I think I even in like my very basic, very non-vegan chocolate cake recipe wants an incredible amount of sugar. And I... I do not obey the uh, recipe. Yeah. And in the vegan, I do make a vegan zucchini bread with chocolate chips. We, uh -huh. But it wants a cup and a half of wow. brown sugar. And I only put in half a cup. So I minus an entire cup of sugar. Wow. And wow. it doesn't like it still comes out great like i didn't have to adjust the baking times or anything That's so yeah anybody out there worried about sugar you can you can minus quite a bit of sugar out of any recipe and you're going to be okay that's interesting. You sort of answered a question, which was how much does sugar affect sort of the consistency of, well, cake-like things. Obviously, something like a meringue or, or whipped cream or something is going to have right. impact. But uh, uh, when it comes to cake-like substances, obviously, you can vary a little. And I, I'm going to do that. I'm going to, next time if I do something, I'm going to even cut it down a little more. What's the other thing you made? I've been doing this thing where I've been trying not to use the New York Times as my, um, as my main go-to, but I do want to try new recipes. So it sort of also goes to publications. You know, I think we lost Fine Cooking Magazine. I don't think that exists anymore. That used to be a really good one. We still have Sever Magazine. What I think has happened with that magazine is I think they just kind of do special editions now. I, I, I don't think they, they do like a monthly or a quarterly thing. I think they just sort of publish in, you know, like food stores and stuff as like special stuff. And they had something called Rich Soups and Hearty Stews. And I was just looking for something to make, something new, because as everyone knows me knows that when it comes to winter, I like my stews. I like to do things that take like an hour in the oven or on the stove to make. And then I look for something I never made before. And I'm holding it up right now is this is this issue in case people want to find it. It just came out. They had a Hungarian goulash and I had, I had never made it. And I said, okay, um, and and this is with beef, but I will say you could totally make this with mushrooms. I think it would be really good that you could completely do this as a vegan recipe. It doesn't call for butter. And what's interesting that I, I think when we started this show, I remember talking to you about how I, I had read an article where it said that the only way to really learn a lot about different recipes and cultures that that surround a recipe is try hard to make it exactly as they do it instead of always sort of tweaking it to your natural tastes or what you're used to doing. So I was determined to do this dead on. And it was really interesting because it, it requires only three major spice ingredients, which is a quarter of a cup of sweet paprika. <laughs> That's a lot. I know. Two teaspoons Ooh. of caraway seeds and two teaspoons of marjoram. I don't know if there's a shortage of marjoram or whether it's just an uh, a f infrequently used spice, but I had to go to three stores to get it, but I was determined 
to not use anything except that. I wasn't going to say, oh, well, let me just try this instead of that. Um, so I finally, after three stores, found marjoram. Um, and then I made it. And um, it, I'm really glad I did it that way because it really was a very special flavor profile that I'd never had before. The recipe was written by Catalin Benfalvi, and it comes from a village called Boni in Hungary. So it came out really good. But what was so interesting is how different the flavor was and how it was a sort of if I had decided to make changes in it, I wouldn't have gotten that sense of eating something completely different. So I really enjoyed that. I made a lot so I can give some away. Um, and like I said, I actually think you could take some nice meaty mushrooms and make a vegan thing. It also calls for two full onions chopped. Uh, so it's, it's strongly flavored, but you know, sweet paprika is not spicy. Uh, and uh, so anyway, right. it, was, it was a really interesting recipe. Um, and it, it does take some getting used to if you haven't had something that uses that much paprika, but it's a beautiful color. It's a very rich kind of stewy soupy thing. And um, so that's what I made. Fantastic. Um, I just want to do a little update for the status of Savour. As of February 2021, it's sort of switched to be a digital forward brand. So they stopped publishing as a quarterly print. And they've been around for like 27 years, but they, um, they went to sort of online only. And it's a great website. And I think maybe because of this, we should make a pact for the month of March, maybe instead of reaching for the New York Times, go to Savour.com and see what you can find there. But they will um, still be doing timely special issues now and again. And I think in 2022, they might have released an expanded version of their cookbook called Savour the New Classics. So, but I was just looking at their website and it's fantastic. It I gotta say it's a little more appealing to look at than the New York Times cooking app. Yeah. It's, it's I did I I I loved that magazine. So I'm happy to to know that it's it lives online. And the recipe I'm looking at right now is West African style peanut stew. Yeah, they've always been very dedicated to um a global outlook on food. When the magazine first opened, they would do all their recipes just all completely text without any sort of lists or bullet points. And it was very hard to follow. And I guess finally someone said, uh, this isn't working because <laughs> now they don't do that. <laughs> and anyway, so yeah, so it, it was really good. And I'm going to share that recipe with people and I'll I'll, I'll post it online or, or actually um, I'll just post the uh, website version of the recipe, which is up there, I'm sure. So Sarah, how about you? What did you make this week? Well, I too, I'm going to talk about two things. And the first thing I made was a dark chocolate shortbread. And it's a very shortbread is a very simple recipe, but it's easy to mess up. And because I use the dark, like dark cocoa powder, the same kind that you would use to make Oreos. I'm not sure exactly like the chemical reasons, but I feel like it was more like had more absorption power than regular cocoa. So when I completed putting the dough together, which is the cocoa powder, powdered sugar and butter and a little salt, it was very dry and <laughs> I was very sad. So yeah. I made a couple cookies with it. And then I said, I got to just come back to this later. I don't have time to deal with it now, but I'm going to fix this dough. So I left it, you know, I wrapped it in the, in the mixing bowl and I put it in the fridge and I said, I'm going to come back to this. 
So this is a hopeful story. So two days later, I was like, you know what? I need to bring this dough back to life. So I took it in the bowl and I put it on my KitchenAid with the paddle attachment. And I just kind of let it get beaten a bit. And in the meantime, I melted a half a stick of butter. This is not scientific at all. This was full magical guessing. I slowly added the melted butter into the dough as it was on the mixer. And it came together like the most perfect, perfect shortbread I've ever seen. And it's a cookie, not like a shortbread bar. So then I rolled it out flat, which I think was back at Christmas time, my tip for if you're making like sugar cookies or shortbread cookies, roll it out flat while it's still malleable and then chill it. So then when it cut, when you need to cut the cookie, it's almost like a fabric <laughs> of cookie that you can just cut and you don't have to try to roll it out when it's sort of cold. So it was slightly a disaster, but then I came back after two days and I repaired it and I was very proud about this. So my tip is if you've got a dry shortbread, you can add in melted butter and it will come back together and you will have delicious cookies. Yeah, now, th those are all the words of someone who knows what they're doing. Uh, <laughs> your, your training definitely came in handy on that one. I knew what to do, but I didn't do anything professional or scientific on going about it. I just said, I'm going to melt this butter and throw it in and see if it works. The other thing I made was from the updated version of Vegetarian Epicure, which was one of my favorite cookbooks when I was a kid, just because I loved the illustrations. Probably like 25 years ago, gosh, I got that updated version of it. And they have great, the cookbook is com put together really sort of sweetly in like menu evenings it'll be like a winter's dinner or a summer picnic and i can't remember where baba ganoush fits in but it was in there and i had seen these eggplants at the store that just caught my eye much like the pomegranate did um a few weeks ago and i said i'm just gonna get these eggplants and i didn't know what i was gonna do with them but i went through this cookbook and i said ah baba ganoush it's like the easiest thing but it it takes a little more time than i had thought i just was missing misremembering that as you're roasting the eggplant, you want to then during that time, caramelize your onions and your garlic. And I just like roasted the eggplant while I was working, doing other stuff. And then I'm like, okay, now I'm going to make this baba ganoush. And I was like, oh man, I had like an, a whole nother hour of melting, caramelizing onions <laughs> before I could get to it. But once you've done that, you really just scoop out the insides of the eggplant. You take your caramelized onions and garlic and it asks for it calls for cayenne pepper, which I added, but now I kind of wanted it a little smokier. So if I make it again, I might use smoked paprika and then like two tablespoons of tahini, lemon juice, salt, pepper, and you just put it in the Cuisinart and it is a fantastic dip or you can spread it on a sandwich. I actually just threw it in a salad last night and it's a fantastic, simple thing to make once you get to the... <laughs> part where you're making it and not making its components that takes a little time oh and and you know one thing that people that some people do that's really good too is perhaps more in the summer if you use an actual charcoal grill is to just stick the whole eggplant on the grill and just let it roast on and then that smokiness you're talking about is going to be sort of a part of it just from doing that oh yeah definitely i'm gonna make this again on the grill and Ha have that smokier flavor for sure 
I'm but if you do it whole like that, you want to puncture it with a the tines of a fork kind of all the way around. If you if you roast your eggplant whole, be it on a grill or your oven, you even if you cut it in half and put it face down on a baking sheet, you still want to kind of pierce the skin a couple times with a fork. Don't forget. Right. This reminds me of something else. When I was talking about the Hungarian goulash, it qualifies in the category of things that my partner or someone in my household would never go near. Um, and I thought that maybe when we come back from the break, we'll talk about top five things that you always eat when you're alone and nobody else would like, but you would. You can file eggplants in that category for sure. Yes, yes. For many people, that's the case. When we're back from the break, lonely pleasures, trivia, and the banana king. You're listening to Food on the Radio on WOMR 92.1 FM in Provincetown, WFMR 91.3 FM in Orleans. The voice, the spirit of Cape Cod. You can also find us at WOMR.org. So we're back on Food on the Radio. And so, Sarah, we were talking about my goulash and you were talking about eggplant. And we were saying how both of those things were stuff that various people in our lives, partners, family members would never touch. And I was thinking, I've got probably a whole list um, that I could at least narrow down of things I only eat myself when I'm alone because no one else wants any part of it. Do you have some too? <laughs> oh, you know it. I think everybody does. What are some of the ones that you make that are sort of on your top of your list? It's not really nobody. It's Steph. I mean, they all kind of fall into the same thing. Steph hates eggplant. He hates mushroom. He hates zucchini. He hates squash. And those are like four of my favorite food. <laughs> and I would say over time, these 15 or so years, and not like I'm trying to make, like, I don't want to make him eat something he doesn't like, but I like to eat these things. So I figured out ways to sort of disguise them. So there is a squash soup. It's a squash and apple soup, also from the vegetarian epicure that I can make that he will eat. And there's a mushroom bolognese that he will eat, but only so much of before he can really detect the the vibe of the mushroom. And he will eat the zucchini bread that I make. But I will tell you, when I make baba ganoush or I want to like make eggplant rollatini or just like make balsamic like you roast eggplant slices and then soak it in this delicious balsamic vinegar and brown sugar and sesame oil. Like I, I wait till he's like out for the day <laughs> and I will, right. I will make all kinds of eggplant stuff or mushrooms. Natalie hates curry. <laughs> what? Um, yeah. She doesn't like curry. She doesn't really like Asian foods that much. Um, and also the most hated thing in the world is mayonnaise. Um, can't even say the word in front of her. Um, oh my God. I just ate some mayonnaise um, when we were on the break, like from a spoon right out of the jar. So some of the things I make is I discovered the sort of uh, ubiquitous, well, at least in, in certain families, the, you know, golden curry of Vermont curry, which are those cubes of basically oh, yeah. it's, it's like a curry roux. And so I'll make some sort of stir fry and then I'll just add that to it. If anybody hasn't, I'll, I'll post that too. I, I know I've talked about it before, but um, if you've never cooked with it there, I've, I've also found recipes that specifically say how to make like traditional Japanese curry, but you can throw it in anything if you don't feel like 
making a whole kind of sauce for some sort of curry. You can you can just use it, even if it's not specifically Asian. I also like to make sweet and sour pork with like pineapple, which you would never be uh, near. But in terms of mayonnaise, one of my favorite things is just to get like a cold, cold chicken <laughs> and literally dip pieces of chicken in mayonnaise and eat it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. You're I, speaking I actually, my language. Yeah, I actually, I, I love that. And then... um. One of my favorite summer foods that only I will eat is I love a big fat turkey kielbasa type sausage in a roll with a lot of ketchup, relish, and mustard. I mean, that sounds good. I I, I think a lot of people would like that. But I, I'd love to hear from other people. Sort of, It's not really guilty pleasure. It's sort of like when, I mean, in general, one of the things is I tend to like things that are way more strongly flavored. Um, so I also... I'll make a steak by myself, but it'll be pretty much have almost like a quarter inch layer of like cracked pepper and salt and yes. uh, and and um, uh, uh, garlic powder or something. But it's so overspiced that no one else would want it. We would want it. The <laughs> yeah. the salmon that Steph makes is encased in a like a it's like lacquered in black pepper. So delicious! It's fantastic. Yeah. We're yeah. with you. I guess instead of guilty pleasure, one would call that one's lonely pleasures. <laughs> um, so yeah, um, I think that means something else. Well, in this case, it's a totally clean meaning. That's all I can say. Um, it's so more like survivalism. Like I need to eat these foods, but I just I don't want to put anybody else out, so I do it on the down low. Yeah, for sure. So anyway, if you're out there, listener, listeners, and you've got top favorite sort of lonely food pleasures. Let us know at foodontheradio at gmail.com. Uh, word of warning for those of you who are going to venture out and grab some Vermont curry that they are full on sodium bombs. Be aware in case you have a sodium situation that in a serving size of a Vermont curry, which is one sixth of a package, there are 880 milligrams of sodium. Well, yeah, it is not a health cube. I never use the whole, they're sort of portioned off like chocolate bars, sort of. I always use half of one. I never use the whole one. It's fun to experiment with in other things as well. Only the lonely. I have recently found out an exciting fact about Wellfleet that probably lots of people know, but probably lots of people maybe don't know and i'm gonna see if you know about it it's slightly food related well it's totally food related okay have you heard of captain lorenzo dow baker i have not aka the banana king well first of all i have not heard of him second of all is he a baker or is his last name baker his last name is Baker. His whole oh. name is Lorenzo Dow Baker, and he was a sea captain from Wellfleet. I have not heard of him. So Lorenzo Dow Baker was a sea captain. He was actually born in 1840 at Bound Brook Island, which was like a little bayside fishing village near Truro. And I mean, he was like went out to sea when he was like a little kid and became a captain when he was like 20 years old. He brought party of gold prospectors to Venezuela. And on the way home, he had to stop for repairs in Jamaica. And he was kind of like trying to suss out like what he could get to bring back to sell to make a little extra money. And he 
the portmaster there suggested this kind of weird oblong local fruit that was at that point unknown in the United States. And so Captain Baker came back to the United States with 608 bunches of green bananas. Holy mackerel. This guy is who brought bananas to the United States. I had no idea about this. I had no idea about his ties to the Cape, that bananas were something that <laughs> were brought here by like someone looking to make a buck. So he first comes to New Jersey and he sells all 608 bunches and then goes right back to Jamaica and now gets 1,400 bunches and brings them back to Boston. And that's where he hooks up with a guy named Andrew Preston. And they sort of combine their efforts and they start what was called the Boston Fruit Company. Oh, now we're getting good here. Is this where the this where the banana cream pie comes from? I mean, I guess you could say it's because of Captain Lorenzo Dow Baker that there is a banana cream pie. Boston Fruit Company goes on to become it gets like renamed United Fruit and then becomes Chiquita. And as we know, these sort of mass operations and other places trying to make money, it becomes bad and ugly down the line. But I think he died before all that really <laughs> took a hold. And he was just actually this sort of philanthropic guy. He loved Jamaica. He endowed schools and hospitals there. And he's the guy that built the Chiquesset Inn. That was near Mayo Beach, you know, the big old hotel that was there. Right. And there's, there is a monument somewhere along the beach of where the original Chiquesset Inn was. Yeah, because it used to, like, it went out on a... Way out like on, on a pier. Yes, way out onto the pier. There's some great pictures of it. It looks like it was really cool. I just wanted to tell you, in case you hadn't heard, that I the did. reason that there are bananas in the United States is because of a sea captain from Wellfleet. I, I think the banana is the most maligned yet perfect food in the world. <laughs> it's just the fact that it you couldn't you couldn't invent something better than a banana in terms of perfectly packaged. You don't have to wash it. You just peel it and you can eat it, right? It's ready to eat. It's the perfect size for a little snack. It can be made into a million different things. It has a very distinct flavor. And I almost feel like they should be about 10 times the price. Ah, well... I would agree they are a fantastic and almost a perfect food. One banana, two banana, three banana, four. Four bananas make a bunch of so many more. Well, Sarah, you know how much I love trivia and trivial facts, and I appreciate that a whole lot. But, of course, I like a good game, as you know. And, I and, do. And so I'm always busy. And so once more, there's an installment of Adam gives trivia to Sarah to try to answer all right i'm ready let's have I, it so one of these questions is my favorite question i've ever asked you of all time of all time there's no question about it i think anyone who's listened to the show will agree so the first one is just true or false true or false okay bluefish are aggressive game fish that will put up a fight when caught uh well i know they can bite your fingers so i'll say true you're right bing 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 okay <laughs> Um, what famous explorer named Cape Cod after he caught a ton of cod on the waters of the Cape, off the Cape? Was it A, Samuel de Champlain, 
B, Bartholomew Gosnold. C, Henry Hudson. D, Sir Francis Drake. Bartholomew Gosnold, thank you. I know. I bet you you learned that at school. <laughs> it was on our. It was inscribed on our lunch boxes. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. He was also um, instrumental in founding the Virginia Company in London and the Jamestown Colony, and he led the first recorded expedition to Cape Cod. All right. Okay. So we're going to finish with this last question. This is one of the best questions ever. There is a Cornish fish dish which is known as stargazy pie. How does stargazy pie get its name? Is it A, it is traditionally cooked outdoors on Christmas Eve. B, it has fish heads sticking out of the crust looking skyward. C, the fish are laid out in a star pattern on the pie. That's it. I've never heard of this, but I'm going to tell you the answer I want it to be. And I want it to be that the fish heads are sticking out of the pie, looking at the sky. Now, I never actually want to see this or eat it, but I want that to be the answer. <laughs> well, of course it's the answer because it was tailor-made for you. That is correct. And and of course it's the answer because I know how much you love it uh, <laughs> when there's food oh. looking, looking back at you. So someday I'm going to make the stargazy pie just for you. <laughs> That'll be the end of our friendship. It says sometimes both the tails and the heads stick out. What you're describing sounds like something from a nightmare. Like, I know you want me to watch that movie, The Menu, but really, all you have to do is show me a picture of what you've just described, and that's horror enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I'm going to try to find a picture and post it just to make you even more miserable. Oh, we'll have to definitely share a picture of this on Instagram for uh, those of you who are not faint of heart or fish. Well, Sarah, that was a lot of fun, but we are once again out of time. So, so long from Food on the Radio. Bye, Sarah. Bye, Adam. Take a seat in this dream kitchen.